Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women in science, technology, engineering and maths or STEM an opportunity to be open and honest about what it's really like working in these typically male-dominated subjects. Each week, one woman shares her stories and experiences. She could be a public figure, the girl next door, or someone from a far-off land. The point is she'll be deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we're not distracted by the details of her achievements, her labels, or what she looks like. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, also a woman in STEM. I studied mechanical engineering and ended up as a television broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting edge technology and innovation over the years. And through my TV work, I've met some incredible women from a diverse range of STEM fields. And you know what? I've been more amazed about what I've learned from these women when the cameras have been turned off and they're just being themselves. These women have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us. And it's their off air honesty that I'd love to share with you through silence. It's my hope that you'll really relate to what's shared with you today and that you're inspired and supported and comforted as I always am when I chat with my amazing guests. If so, please do subscribe to Silence and maybe even leave some comments and reviews. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of neuroscience. Hi. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Tell me, how did you feel when you found out that this was an anonymous podcast? I mean, I think it's so freeing. I mean, those of us in academia are, you know, fighting for our reputations, fighting to be seen and acknowledged for the work that we do and not wanting some of our experiences to overshadow that. So I think that this is sort of the necessary format for true honesty and for those stories that we all have to kind of get out there. Yeah. I mean, neuroscience, what what are the gender balances? Actually, you know, in most biological fields, it's pretty much 50-50. I think in my institution, if you looked across all layers in academia, it was probably maybe more female than male. But of course, as you start to go up the ladder, you see that ratio start to shift. And it definitely... I don't know what the ratio of faculty at my institution were, but there were definitely far less women than there were men. Yeah, it seems like that's a trend across all industries and all academic disciplines, which is that when it comes to senior levels, very few women make it there. Why do you think that is? I mean, that's what we talk about, that leaky pipeline, right? And you can you can talk about all of the major issues. The first one that men usually bring up is, well, they have, they want to have kids and they spend less time in the lab trying to get tenure. And then there's the unconscious bias and the fact that, you know, even it's starting tenure track, women are starting at usually a lower salary rate and negotiate far smaller startup packages, for instance. So I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Yeah, it's definitely not straightforward, but I think, um, what always seems to be the general trend is that women want so much more than just careers. I agree. I also, there's sort of a parallel you can draw with finance. And there was an investment banker that I was speaking with and I, we were sort of wandered onto the topic of gender disparity in investment banking, which is, you know, there's a huge disparity in the number of women versus men there. And his take on it was, well, the lifestyle and the demands of mm. being an analyst and climbing the ranks in that industry are such 
that only young men are stupid enough to want to do that to themselves and that women are more reasonable and demand work-life balance and all of these ridiculous things. And so they opt out themselves, which I thought was a really interesting take. I I don't know how truthful that is. Mm, Yeah, I feel that. I I can relate to that. Like sometimes like going through academia was just like, I was just head down. I just thought of the goal. I didn't think of the actual journey, the destination rather than the journey. It's a bit Um, like joining the army. Yeah. I mean, tell me about your, um, your journey through academia. When you were a kid, did you know that you wanted to be a neuroscientist? No, I don't think I ever wanted to be a neuroscientist. I was pretty, pretty sure I was going to end up in the performing arts um, for the majority of my education, but that just isn't how it turned out. Every time I started to do things in the arts, I would get pulled back to science. And so I sort of followed, I was one of those that followed those parallel paths. There's so many of us, we just don't talk about it because we keep our arts in the closet. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so I was one of those um, artist scientists um, and I, I had two loves. So I bounced back and forth. Mm. So what drew you back to science? Was it the fact that you found it easy or you were good at it? No, I just liked being able to explain stuff. That I I have really strong feelings about agency and being in control of myself and having mastery in this world and in my environment. And I find that knowledge and literacy in STEM concepts has definitely helped me feel like I was making more empowered and informed decisions in my own life. Um, and the idea that you can actually discover new things that can help other people understand the world and like have a little piece of that giant pool of knowledge that scientists contribute to that's yours was really attractive and exciting. So why did you go to such great lengths to get such an extensive education and why in the direction of neuroscience? I Well, neuroscience was easy. I wanted to work on something that was related to people, that was impactful, So I worked on a human health indication. And so, you know, I wanted to know that grad school was going to suck. And I knew that because it's hard. And that's why it's grad school. And I wanted to wake up in the morning and go into lab and work on something that was going to matter to people and human health. And so I picked sort of biology and neuroscience for me was really interesting because I always cared about like, why do people behave the way that they behave? How do they make the decisions that they make? Like, humans are really weird. And I just kind of wanted to know about that. And so the brain was sort of my, my, my uh, view into the inner workings of humanness. Yeah, that makes sense. So what was it like studying the subject? Because it honestly sounds intimidating. <laughs> you know, I think the really exciting thing for me about studying the brain is that the more you learn about the brain, the more you're learning about yourself. And I think a lot, mostly humans are naturally sort of selfish. So, you know, if you're learning about yourself, it doesn't seem so difficult or you don't seem so removed from the subject matter. I really enjoyed learning about the mechanics and the systems and how they fit together and um, the chemistry that sort of controlled the processes that make up me. It, all, it was all kind of philosophical and existential, and I really enjoyed it. I think that was one of the reasons I chose to go into biology and then eventually into neuroscience was of all of the textbooks that I had when I was a kid, I would read my biology book for fun. 
Like it wasn't really homework. I would read the chapter and then I would keep reading because it was interesting. And I sort of paid attention to that. And I was like, okay, so this is something I should pursue. And so was it obvious when you were a kid that you were going to end up with this really impressive education? Like, were you that kid where it's like, oh, yeah, she's definitely going to end up being a doctor? Yeah, I don't think my parents would have had it any other way. I was one of those really scheduled children, you know, it's like narcissistic extension of your parents who are like really overly active in your life. And I had the violin lessons and the dance classes and the gymnastics and the, you know, private tutoring and math. And they were really concerned, I think, that I was going to come out weird. So they tried to overcompensate and all of this stuff, like even you know, in terms of like trying to make sure I was cultured, like opera and dance and exposing me to all of those Mm. things. So they had really high hopes for me. I didn't know any other way. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually was having a conversation about how parents try to make their kids well-rounded by giving them extracurricular activities. Um, But actually you end up becoming a jack of all trades, um, and not necessarily a master of something. I definitely feel like that. I think that that was one of the greatest misconceptions I had when I entered my PhD program was that, okay, this is it. This is the end. I'm just going to focus on science. I'm going to be a one note wonder. All of these other you know, interests and things that make up the multifaceted nature of me, I'm going to put to the side. I'm just going to eat, sleep, breathe, think science for the next five or six years. And that's, I'm going to be the most perfect grad student that the world has ever seen. And I mean, I'm all the academics that are listening to this are like laughing their ass off right now. <laughs> yeah. What happened? How did that go? <laughs> yeah, that lasted for actually a pretty long time. It lasted for about a year and a half. Yeah. And then I just couldn't take it anymore. And I went to my first audition for a performing arts thing on campus and it was just downhill from there (laughs) really but you still managed to stick at the doctorate absolutely yes I think that that's one of the things that when I speak with students that are considering PhD programs or considering academic careers now usually they're in high school or high school seniors looking to apply to undergrad or undergraduate seniors looking to apply for their graduate programs I sort of ask them like what else will you have? Right. So what else is available on the campus you're going to, or what other interests do you plan to pursue? And the line I always tell them is when your research fails, because it will fail, it's science. Mm. What is left in your life? Cause if you don't have anything else, then your life just failed and that sucks. Right. Yeah. God, that's such a great, that's such a great lesson because The PhD or any kind of qualifications of that nature really do consume you. And it's almost like you have to make a decision to accommodate other things in your life. Well, the fishbowl narrows, right? You know, so some deep in the depths of third or fourth year when you're really in the dark times and everyone that you interact with either has a PhD or is in the pursuit of a PhD And you begin to think that if you fail out of your program, you will be the only person in the world that doesn't have a PhD (laughs) and you are going to fail life, Yeah, you know, and there's all of these insecurities and, you know, all of these 
questions that you have about the narrative that you've always told yourself, you know, oh, I'm good at science, I'm going to be a doctor, and then maybe that's not true. And, you know, the I think end of third year, early fourth year is like really the dark times. Mm. Gosh, you sound like you really remember it well, because just hearing you say that it's bringing it back. But I haven't thought about that for a long, long time. Like it did get really dark. Um, (laughs) uh, It's been a while now since I qualified. And uh, I just remember it as being actually just a really um, very focused time. But there was a lot going on kind of on a sort of emotional and almost a spiritual level um when when doing when doing my research because you do ask yourself so many existential questions i mean i think you say you are focused i would argue that the fight or flight response focuses your attention <laughs> and your senses right so it's definitely a high anxiety time and you yeah especially I went to one of those institutions that everybody knows. So you look to your right and you look to your left and everyone around you thinks that they're one paper away from a Nobel prize. Cause that's the expectation <laughs> at the Institute that you're at. Um, yeah. And it can seem really upsetting. There was a particular moment in grad school when I was still a junior, I think I was just starting my third year and I had to give a bio lunch with another graduate student who was more senior to me. And that's, you know, it's the usual academic, like 20 minute talk with slides about update the department on your research. I'm sure most people have done this. And she went first and she had these beautiful fluorescent microscopy images of gorgeous neuronal tracts and perfectly articulated brain regions, just really impressive, gorgeous images. And I was just learning how to use my confocal microscope. And I had these grainy, sad little (laughs) images. And then this like really rudimentary like analysis. And I was sort of humiliated. And I remember just like going somewhere on campus and crying after that because I felt like she had so much and I had nothing. But I look back Mm -hmm. on it now and I, I can say, wow, she had a really great, skill of using the microscope but she showed no real data and there was no analysis it was just really Mm. beautiful images and I at least had tried to say something with the pictures that I took so I think it's about perspective too we don't really put ourselves into perspective when we're doing that kind of level of academia um I think it's such a competitive environment that we lose sight of how far we've come I agree and I I think that that I mean there is just so much of comparing yourself to others in academia at every level right that's sort of how we define our status in academia it's not so not actually just in academia true absolutely true (laughs) yeah I mean, you know, there is so much comparison and um, I wonder if that's a female trait or whether that's just a human trait to constantly compare ourselves to others. I mean, I think that status is more important to certain types of personalities than to others, but we have definitely been comparing ourselves to the neighbors for, you know, probably as long as we were aware of how social status worked 
So were you doing the neuroscience because that's what was expected of you? Or were you doing it because you genuinely were fascinated by it? I chose neuroscience because I was genuinely fascinated by it. I chose the PhD because I had a bachelor's in biochemistry. And I was looking at what my future with that was going to look like. And it looked like a research scientist in R&D for a biotech company doing the same thing over and over and over again and becoming a really great technician that works on one machine with other people telling them what to do or spending five or six years in a research program, learning to make my own decisions, learning to have scientific perspective and become an expert in my field. And at the end of it, really be able to understand the big picture and the context that science happened in and have an opinion and an idea about where science could go and what the future looked like. So it was kind of a no brainer. And did you have any other kind of pressure on you? Because I know from my, from my experience, you know, there was a lot of kind of parental expectation, put it that way. Um, yes. I mean, I, I took some time off. I took two years between my undergrad and my graduate program. And I, I always sort of thought, oh, maybe I'll do a master's, but I never really thought about a PhD program. That just kind of happened. But when I told my father that I was going to be applying for graduate programs, he was so excited I've never actually seen him that excited, except maybe when I actually graduated. This was sort of a fulfillment of his dream, and I knew that that was important to him. So that that helped me make the decision for sure. And were there other people that inspired you? Actually, I think that the other inspirations came from other women role models in the lab. There's not so many of them. But early on, when I was doing my undergraduate research, there was a lab manager who I really respected as a scientist and as a woman. And she managed to balance both. She was um, from the Czech Republic and just kind of had this amazing style. And she could knock one back with the boys at the bar in the evening and also sort of <laughs> keep them in line in the lab and like crush them with her technical skill um, during the day. Wow. And she was just sort of everything to me. So I wanted to be her when I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so you were inspired by role models. Absolutely. I think that I found that my entire life. And the older I get, the more I appreciate how much pattern matching I do. Um, mm. I had a really weird upbringing. I was homeschooled. Um, so I didn't go through like the normal patterns of like learning about social interaction <laughs> So I learned the social patterns of each group that I participate in through observation and mimicry. And if you don't have really terrific role models, which it's really difficult to be a woman in science and to get it right. So if you're looking for a woman in science to look up to, you have maybe a chance of finding one. And if mm. she hasn't figured out how to navigate the, you know, all of the complexities of what that means, well or in a way that works for you and your personality it can be really isolating and it took me yeah. a while to find the people that I thought were really doing it well or that I admired yeah it's interesting that you say that because I've also had discussions about the different types of schooling that 
young people receive, you know, whether that's co-ed or single sex or being homeschooled. I mean, there are arguments for and against all kinds of different educations. Um, Do you have a strong opinion on any of them? I'm really glad that I was homeschooled. It totally worked for me. I had a small group of other kids that we sort of homeschooled together with. Not that we did lessons together, but that we did all of the usual field trips and game days and sports and all of that stuff together. Um, So I felt like I was growing up in a community and I had friends. I don't know that it works for everyone, especially I've seen it work really well for first and maybe second children, but not later siblings because they get less attention. So I think that homeschooling really worked for me and I wouldn't have wanted to go to school, but that doesn't mean that it would work for everyone. It's very individual. I guess if you've been homeschooled, you don't know what you would have gained or lacked in any other situation. True, but I also encountered most of my bullying and passive aggressive behavior and aggressive aggressive behavior for the first time as an adult and I might not have had the skills necessary <laughs> to cope with it when I first saw it because most people see that in kindergarten or preschool to be able to handle bullying or any kind of aggression does take a very strong personality um and a strong personality can be developed in all kinds of ways. It often is linked to self-esteem and self-belief. And those things can be learned. I think they're very influenced by home life. I think that it can be to our detriment, though, especially in the professional setting. So, you know, even though I had this unconventional upbringing, I was still absolutely taught to respect authority authority meant anyone older than you, um, respect the rules, to follow the system, to be a good girl, to not rock the boat. You know, all of these things were instilled in me through quite strong (laughs) reinforcement at home. So it took me a really long time to get to a place where I realized I could establish a boundary with someone in a position of authority. And that I had the voice and I could say, no, um, that's actually not what I think um, or Mm -hmm. you're wrong. And it took me a really long time to realize that I could decide to break a rule. That might, you know, I would have to accept whatever consequences there were, but I could make that decision. That was possible. And I wish that I had learned those things sooner. Really? Yeah, because... The skills that you talk about in terms of knowing how to have boundaries and carry yourself in the world um, really are what women in STEM and just women in society uh, have to grapple with all the time. All the time. You learning these things maybe later than most, how do you think it has impacted your life generally? In terms of outcome, I mean, this is the best case scenario. I learned it, even if I learned it late, right? Yeah. Um, but it's multi- it's those multiple moments, right? It's the moments where you're walking down the hall with a senior scientist in the lab having a conversation that takes a weird turn and you think, huh, that was inappropriate or 
Hmm. Yeah, after the fact. I'm pretty sure I was supposed to call HR. <laughs> but yeah. you, it doesn't occur to you because you're taught to be nice and make sh- and smooth yeah. everything over. So you laugh it off and then it follows you for another hour or two. And then finally, in your head. Yeah. Right. And then it clicks and you're like, oh, no, that was actually bad. Yeah. I mean, do you know what? Part of the reason why I started this podcast is because years later, after being deeply embedded in the industry of mechanical engineering, a light bulb suddenly went on off in my head where I realized that I actually had a really tough time being a woman in a very male-dominated environment. And the reason why I had a tough time was because I accepted a lot of behavior thinking that I just had to, I just, you know, that's just the way it is. You know, you have to be nice if uh, men are saying certain things or because I was so isolated and I was a minority and, you know, there is this real need to be accepted into a group. Um, Now, I don't think you experienced that if you were not a minority as a female, but you may have experienced that anyway, just because of your circumstances. Yeah, certainly. I'm not seeing, I mean, I'm half Asian. That's not a minority in, in science, but you know, as a woman, you do, you do experience certain prejudice and then you have to decide whether or not it's worth talking about and bringing up and making a big deal about and then being labeled as a troublemaker on campus and then nobody Mm -hmm. wanting to work and collaborate with you and then your advisor being difficult when you need his signature on things and you know like it kind of snowballs yeah so do you reckon you've got a grip over how to carry yourself in those circumstances now or are you still is this something you're still grappling with I think that it's always a work in progress. I've certainly gotten better at recognizing in real time and being able to speak up and say, hey, actually, that's offensive. Um, Yeah. But I don't always do it. It's always a judgment call. Um, I hold my tongue more than I should. Um, But it's also really surprising to me the things that people think are okay to say and do and like, I was on a business trip with one of my bosses recently and he like was watching this offensive video that he felt the need to show me. And I was like, I'm on a business trip with you and I don't need to be seeing video with this type of content on it um, while sitting next to you on a plane. This is now incredibly uncomfortable for four hours. (sighs) Yeah. So do you tend to speak out about it or? In that case, I said, I don't find that amusing or interesting and I'm actually a little offended but I left it there and because you know you're now you're sitting next to them for four hours what are you gonna do Mm, yeah so what was the response like was it awkward no he just laughed like I made the funniest joke ever and like played it (laughs) off yeah and then proceeded to show the video to multiple other people thus proving that I was the uptight prude right so yeah well, I guess the the way to handle that situation is to know that you're not an upright prude, right? <laughs> I mean, I think one of the major problems um, that women face is believing, believing the bully, 
True. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something that I've been learning is that often when I feel bullied or harassed in some way, I kind of feel like I'm the one in the wrong and that they must be right. Oh, yeah. What did I do? What did I yeah. do? The victim mentality. Oh, I wore the short skirt, so I deserve what I got. Like, that's yeah. that mentality, right? Yeah. I'm really interested in your experience in engineering because on my side, like, as a laboratory scientist, most of the explicit sort of sexual harassment that I received was from senior males. Mm. Um, and there were some bullying from senior female scientists. But I never had the experience of being in a classroom or in a situation where my male peers closed ranks around me or against me, you know? What's interesting about not just my experience, but women that I've had on this show is that there has always been a real lack of assertiveness on the part of the women. And, you know, we tend to shy away from truly expressing how we feel or truly owning our self-doubt. And instead, we kind of take it away and suffer with it in silence. And the minute we admit that actually we're feeling a bit weak or a bit vulnerable about something or a little bit yeah just a little bit vulnerable about something that actually shows a huge amount of empowerment or it is empowering and I think that's what I hope to try and convey through these podcasts that it is okay to actually air your true feelings about things because I think women feel very pressured to hide how they really feel or put on a front or uh, sort of fake it uh, to make it in male-dominated environments. And we do ourselves a real disservice because we're being disingenuous. Have you seen Amazon TV has a series um, called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Mm -mm. And in the pilot episode, it shows a woman, I think it's the 1950s, it shows kind of what the housewife looks like. And I'm bringing this up because she you know, in her fabulous dressing gown, goes to bed next to her husband, waits for him to fall asleep, then wakes up, brushes her teeth, puts her hair in curlers, puts a kerchief over the curlers, puts the cold cream on her face so she looks like a terrible, horrific monster, and then goes to sleep. And then she wakes up early before her husband and she brushes her teeth and takes off the cold cream and fluffs out her hair and puts on makeup and then gets back into bed so she could just wake up like this. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. I mean, that's only 50 years ago, right? Or 60 years ago. And how liberating for us if we could just walk around in the hair curlers and the cold cream. I mean, I would love women to have enough confidence and self worth and self belief to say, you know what? I want my hair in curlers and I want to wear the cold cream. And that's just part of. The whole beauty regime. I did not wake up like this, you know? That's what I would like to achieve. I think we're seeing some of that with celebrities posting, like, no makeup selfies and, and, like, leggings and sweats sort of, like, becoming a hip thing to wear. I hope that we're going that sort of direction. But I wanted to mention something about that sort of relatedness and belonging piece. And, I mean, it's one of the core psychosocial needs that we have as humans, right? If we don't belong to the group, then we get eaten or we get sick and we die because we can't share the resources of the group. So it's so encoded in our DNA. And unfortunately, that social pressure 
of what women have to do in order to be valued and and seen as being you know part of the group is really um extreme and and perhaps against our natural inclinations i'm no i don't even know if we would wear curlers and cold cream without you know the yeah the conventional beauty standards being what they are so yeah but we do feel a pressure to be a certain weight mm-hmm. and a certain butt size and a certain chest size and you know it's there is that overarching awareness that in order to be accepted, we do have to be a certain way. I agree. And yeah, so do you try to conform to that? Where are you on that spectrum? <laughs> I think it was really when I was um, working in my in, in my graduate lab, I had a lot of people confused as to why I was there. A lot of this is sort of part of the bullying by um, senior female scientists in my lab who would constantly tell me, well, if you care about clothes so much, because I like clothes and I would wear actual clothes to the lab, not sweats. If you care about clothes <laughs> so much, why don't you just go into fashion? You don't have to be a scientist to wear clothes. If you like people so much and you like talking so much, why don't you do something else? She was kept trying to tell me that I didn't look, think, or act like what she thought a scientist should be. And therefore, I should go do something else with my time. And she actually told me that my fellowship, the scholarship that I was on, could be better served going to somebody that was, quote unquote, more like a scientist. Okay, so that would have crushed me. How did that affect you? (laughs) She was not a nice person. And honestly, I think it affected me very poorly. And it definitely hit my self-esteem. But because there was a graduate student working under her, who she was the direct mentor for, who was getting far worse than I was, I kind of, I felt more sorry for the other graduate student than than I did for myself, if that makes sense. Even though, yes, it, it made me really think about my choices and how I wanted to present myself. Yeah, because honestly, I had something similar um as well, because, you know, at the time I was um, dabbling in a bit of fashion modeling. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I was computational fluid dynamics modeling as well. And so there was often this joke amongst the guys, because there were only guys in my situation, who would say, oh, so what kind of modeling are you doing today? Computational or fashion and things like that. So there was, and there was, I just felt so much guilt for having that side of me that was capable of being in fashion and being amongst that. Um, And I almost disliked myself for it. And I then tried to just uh, stuff it away. You know, it's like, you know, I really have to just focus on CFD and put my head down and just work on my doctorate and deny a part of me that was you know, frankly, undeniable. Um, And I look back on that person who was in her 20s and I just feel like sad for her because, you know, in order to fit in, I I had to kind of block out a very important part of myself. And I don't think I will ever, I would never ever advise a young girl in a similar situation to do the same thing. 
I think that's that's what I've learned from it is that I will never I will never say to um, someone in engineering like you can't be feminine or you can't love feminine things. It's it's from that fight. It's from the fight to be included and to have just the same as the men and just the same as the boys and to participate in exactly the same way. And it's an interpretation of equality, meaning we have to be like them in order to be equal. And some gen- some of the like older generation of scientists made that decision, but not all. Um, and I'm hoping that the younger generation knows better. We seem with today's gig economy and people having diverse interests and that being cool. Um, I'm hoping that you see more of the multifaceted nature of scientists. And everyone always says, oh, go back to Leonardo da Vinci. And he was an artist and an engineer and a philosopher Mm. and all of these things. So we used to accept the scientific mind, the inquisitive mind, the curious mind that wanted to explore the world and allow it any medium it wanted for expression. So why do we force it to be siloed now? And I don't have an answer for that. Right. But how did it specifically affect you? Because it sounds like we had, you know, similar treatment. It's amazing that yours came from a woman because mine came from men and that might be more understandable. But like, how did it affect you? Has it affected you? I went through a period of extremely low self-esteem in graduate school. Um, And I had to sort of decide if I wanted to stay. Like, how much did the doctorate really mean? Like, was I going to need it for my career moving forward? Or could I just master out and choose to do something else with my, go into pharmaceutical sales or whatever people do? (laughs) Um, And it it has taken me maybe a good five years post-graduation to really feel like I've come around and am much have a much healthier relationship with who I am as a complete person than I did at the time. Mm, yeah. Um, and it comes from just not knowing yourself and believing the things that other people tell you. Absolutely. Yeah. There's this mindset shift that a good friend of mine who's a psychologist sort of helped me to understand. They do some organizational psychology consulting. So team building and um, their expertise is really in the relationship between people in the workplace. Um, And in a conversation about this topic, the topic came up about compliant versus non-compliant personalities. Mm. Like some personalities are just non-compliant. They will think for themselves. They don't believe everything that they're told and they don't fall into the rules, following the rules, just because they're there. And I hadn't thought of myself as a compliant person before because compliant to me was associated with weak and I didn't want to see myself as weak. Bit of a doormat. But, you know, just having a new understanding of that word and looking at how my behavior mapped to it really shifted my mindset around the decisions I was making for myself and helped me step forward into some new confidence. Wow. So it was a journey then to get to basically a state of having a thicker skin. Absolutely. Mm. And it's about permission to giving yourself permission just to stand up and have an opinion that's not going to be popular. Yeah. I think it's difficult when you're younger because you don't have that 
experience of life under your belt. And you are looking to others for approval. Where did your approval come from? I had close friends from when I was homeschooled growing up that knew like all of me and my whole story um, and that I knew sort of loved me unconditionally. And that it was really nice to be able to touch back with them and have them say, yeah, but do you remember when you were nine and you did this and that was awesome? (laughs) And then again, when you were 12 and, you know, just kind of remind you and help you Mm. keep that perspective. So what would you say then are the keys to kind of surviving as a woman or a minority in the real world? Know why you're there. And be confident in that, whether that means why you're in academia or why you're walking down the street, what you have to do and what you have to add and to offer. And that might be the ways that you plan to learn and grow, but know why you're there. That's really important. And how do you find those answers? I mean, where do they come from? Oh, for me, definitely pure trial and error. I had no idea. Like I was depressed in grad school, wasn't sure if I was going to finish the degree, didn't know who I was. Was I getting my PhD because my dad wanted a PhD in the family or because I wanted, I had a full breakdown, like existential crisis Mm. and was questioning everything, like the entire narrative that had been told to me about myself my whole life or that I had started to reinforce about myself my whole life. Like I decided to revisit and I tried things that I thought I didn't like. And some of them were not so bad. And some of them I really didn't like. And so I was like, okay, we'll keep that. And, you know, every opportunity that came along that seemed interesting, I said yes to kind of with the knowledge that if I didn't like it, we could renegotiate. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I just love the idea of trial and error. You've got to run the experiment. Yeah. Do you approach trial and error with positivity because of your lab experience. I mean, it's what I know. (laughs) I'm a scientist. I need the data to make decisions. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. Even dating, right? Like even with dating, you get the data and then you think you have enough data to make a decision and you either choose to make a decision or not. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, amongst women and maybe even men, uh, certainly with me, I've had a real fear of failure you know, I don't want to try and I don't want to make errors. You know, I just want to know what the right thing to do is. Um, and in, in and in pursuing to not fail, uh, failure has been so much more bitter. But you have to own that word failure and define it for yourself. So if you let other people define what success looks like, then they can continue to move the goalpost and you will forever be chasing it. And this is what I learned through that process. If you know, I define what success is or where that goalpost is for me, and it might be that I failed at the larger task, but there were a few wins or a few behavioral changes that I was trying to make in myself that I saw evident in that attempt. And that's great. That's an incremental movement towards the ultimate goal. Um, So, you know, another million years through the evolutionary process, we'll get to where we were going. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, that's so beautiful, though. Ah, got goosebumps. Um, So what is the ultimate goal? 
I often ask my guests, you know, what does having it all mean to you? I think having it all means being in control of my own time and being able to love and support the people that I care about in a complete way. So success for me professionally means I wake up in the morning and I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. And I know that sounds like crazy hippie nonsense, but if if you actually enjoy the work or the work that you're doing is in service of something larger, like you're working on a human health indication, you should enjoy doing that. That is a good thing. That is the good work. And maybe you won't like some of the tasks that are on your to-do list, but ultimately you are doing the work that you want to do. And so you don't feel like you're giving your time away. You are spending it wisely. Mm, yeah. And I think also humans tend to want to make a plan. You know, we often think when we're older, I'd like to have this and that and be living a certain way. Do you think that far ahead? I used to. I think that like that period, that transition period that I keep referring back to in grad school sort of cured me of that. (laughs) I have an ultimate situation I want to be in right? Like, this is what I want my Mondays to look like. I want to, (laughs) I want to interact with people and have meetings. And I want to work creatively on projects. I want to travel for those projects and see new and exciting things. I want to assist new things in coming into the world or improve other humans experience of their world. And if I can be doing work in that area, then I'm, that's my plan. Yeah. But I think also as a woman, there's also that other dimension to us, which is kind of being maternal and having a family. Is that something that you consider at this stage in your life? I mean, I consider myself very privileged because, you know, I have a lot of choices that other people don't. And part of that was pursuing my academic degree. And so now I have a lot of professional options that other women might not have. And another choice was whether or not I wanted to have kids. And I definitely don't want to have kids. I don't feel the need to um, nurture another life directly. Um, Maybe if I get older and that changes, I would adopt. Um, But I really enjoy other people's kids. I like teaching kids. I've done a lot of teaching when I was and coaching of sports when I was younger. Um, So it's not that I don't like the little people. It's just that I don't want one to follow me home and for me to have to feed it. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Um, Because in my experience of interviewing guests for this show, um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on developing careers because you know most women in STEM are real alpha females and they're extremely capable and they're very focused on what they are able to give to the world in terms of their brains um but often that is at the expense of involving other people to kind of start a family and things like that so Listening to your kind of resolution is kind of liberating. And that decision, the decision not to have kids is a a liberating one. It 
extends the timeline for what you can do when in a way that no other decision in your life really can. Um, and it sort of makes it possible for you to, or uh, compared to maybe other female friends of my acquaintance, I'm far more relaxed when it comes to finding the right partner it, it, at the right time um, than you know, some of my other friends who really do want to start a family and, and to have kids naturally, um, you know, feel a little bit more pressured. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the biological clock is something, I know we have technology of egg freezing and all those things, but the biological clock and its limitation, um, you know, in terms of time adds so much stress and anxiety to career women. Um, because they just want so much and it's just not possible to really have it all in that sense. But if you actually, if you're more realistic about what having it all means to you, then that pressure is released. I think it's absolutely possible to do. I see very accomplished women of my acquaintance, you know, academic professors and NASA engineers that really do seem to have it all. They're in academia, they have multiple kids but they share the burden of childcare, child rearing with their partner. And they have very involved and engaged partners. And so if you're lucky enough to develop that type of relationship with another human, I think that it really can be freeing and liberating and exciting for both people in that relationship. If, you know, having, a biological child is something that is really important to the human experience you want to have on this earth. So it's possible. I just am not choosing it for me. Yeah. And I guess there all, there also is an element of serendipity to actually meet that partner as well. Because I mean, we can only, we can only engineer things to a certain extent and the, le- and the rest is really up to fate, I think. Yeah, fate or statistics, depending on how good you are at online dating profiles. Um, or algorithms. <laughs> yes, or algorithms. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just trying to picture a mini you when you were young, kind of, you know, it sounds like you could, it sounds like you had a lot of options open to you as to which direction your life was going to go. Um, looking back on the decisions you've made, how would you advise a very curious, inquisitive, potential girl in STEM to uh, navigate her life? I think that we're, we're taught to make decisions in a binary way. I'm a science person or I'm not a science person. I'm going to do this or that, you know, this is the way that we set up these decisions that we have to make throughout our lives. But I really truly believe that if it's a true interest or it's a true passion or it's a true thing for you, it's going to come around. So I look at the moment that I chose science over the arts and I did that twice. Um, And if I look back and say, oh, if I had made a different decision, what would have happened? I think I probably would have ended up in a very similar way, just in a different alternate universe. (laughs) I think there would be science and art integrated, even if I had chosen art over science for my formal training. 
Right. Yeah. We just are attracted to things and they either find us or we find them. It feels like. Yeah. You can't run away from who you are too much. Yeah. Well, it's just been so awesome talking to you. Thank you so much. I feel like you have a very strong sense of who you are and that has really come about from having these existential crises. Um, Often it seems like dark has to precede, you know, some kind of enlightenment. Um, And you've certainly been through that. And yeah, you just have a very inspiring message about not being influenced by what other people think, but to really have a keen sense of self. And that is the most important thing. And I know how hard that is. That's like a hard, hard battle that you fight every day. Because sometimes we're not even in touch with what we actually want or think until we've like left the situation, right? But it's something that's so important to me. And if you had spoken to me when I was in graduate school, I certainly would not be as confident (laughs) in my statements as I am now. Mm. But I'm glad that we got here and I'm out of the dark place. Um, and, you know, quite happy and satisfied professionally with my doctorate. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, for anyone that's listening who may be in a bit of um, a quandary about what they're doing and why, maybe because they're in the middle of their PhD or in the middle of deciding what they're going to do with their lives. I think from listening to you and from my own experience, I think it is something that you do pass through it gets better um yeah it does even if it doesn't feel like that at the time i think often these um moments of uncertainty um are really an opportunity to get certain they don't feel like it though they suck (laughs) they suck but you know it's it's kind of necessary to get clarity like art through suffering yeah Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. I hope people are as inspired as I've been. I hope so too. Wisdom. That's it from my STEM guest this week. Wow. I, I feel like her message was just really, really clear, which is, you know, really don't worry about what other people are thinking of you. Just focus on what it is that you want for yourself and you can't go too far wrong. Thank you so much for listening this week. Please do subscribe and leave comments and reviews. And I'll catch you next week on Silence.